been able, because of the pandemic, to come together and, and to worship together in one place at the same time. And in, in the meantime, that the two years of the pandemic, we've had close to 200 people that have become members of our church family who have never experienced that. And uh, I just want to say that, um, you know, coming back together with the full throat of our worship and, and all of the voices together, uh, I can't wait for that to happen. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the shepherds and, and the staff and all of, everyone that has been involved in kind of leading us through this thing. Um, we, we, there's a ways to go still. I, I mean, who knows? But, uh, but, you know, coming back together is really just fills my heart with, with all kinds of joy this morning. How about you? Uh, we are in a series on grace, and so I'm going to ask you right now, if you don't mind, pull out that insert that's inside of the bulletin. On one side of it, you're going to find an outline that has all the scriptures. In the box is going to be the, the longer scripture reading that Tony led us in a couple of minutes ago that is going to form the basis of this week and next week. But all of the scriptures that we're going to be using as we go through the text, there's some fill-in-the-blanks, some main points, and some white space for you to, to make some, some notes for you to, to take with you as, as we go through this study today. On the back side of it, if you're new, this is the MPG. And this is a way that we take the sermon and the material and the teaching and the ideas and all of that down the road in a more practical way. There is a scripture for you to memorize. M is for memorize. The P is for pray. Uh, we not only want to memorize God's Word, but we also want to be able to speak to God and be comfortable in the stance of prayer. And so we're going to give you uh, some ways to pray this week. And then the G stands for glorify. And a lot of times it's just answering some questions, some reflection questions as it pertains to the message. Sometimes there's an activity or something practical to do. Uh, this week it's going to be both. There's going to be something for you to think about and, and to reflect on. And then we're going to ask you to do something with that piece of information with someone later this week uh, when you have opportunity and you've had a chance to kind of think through about some of the experiences of God's grace and faithfulness in your life. Um, as I've said, and as you know, if you've been here, we're doing this series on grace that we're calling Growing in Grace. And it's based on this, this text found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It's up on the screen, and it goes like this. But grow in the grace. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be, be both glory now and forevermore. Amen. We grow in grace. Now, going back about 45, 44 years ago, something like that, um, I was never a, a math major. Uh, I was finishing up my senior year of wrestling in high school. And a teammate and I had gone into another town to buy some gifts for the winter banquet. Now, it had been a, a, an untypically cold winter, and there was still ice on the ground, and there was a ton of snow. And as we're going down the highway, we noticed that the snow plows had pushed snow not just you know, 10 feet, but, you know, two-story high piles of snow to get the snow off of the highway, which made it kind of treacherous if you were trying to get onto the highway. You were entering the highway in a blind way. And so we had gone. We had picked up the stuff we needed. We were heading back. I was driving. I was driving my dad's car, and we're driving pretty slow because it's dad's car, and it's, it's on ice. And sure enough, we're going slow, but there is a car who cannot see us coming, but just comes you know, sort of hurtling onto the highway right there in front of us. 
And I mean, it looks like I'm about to plow into the side of this car that is, that is coming onto the highway, merging on into traffic. And I just instinctively tap the brake and cut the wheel just a little bit, which is the worst thing to do when you're on ice. Now, we didn't hit each other, and he just kept on going, but I went into a power slide. And the power slide turned into a 360, and the 360 turned into a 720, and the 720, we ended up at about a 45-degree angle stuck on top of some snow. And you know what? As I'm telling you this, it's dawned on me that my mom, who is streaming right now, is hearing this story for the first time. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny how that happens, right? <laughs> So we're, we're at 45 degrees, nobody is hurt, and the car, there's not a scratch on it. I mean, that's one of the benefits of landing on a big pile of snow. And we get out of the car, Doug Hill and I, we get out of the car, and we try to push this car out of the snow, and it's, it's a no-go. We're not budging this car, and we realize, you know, sun's starting to go down, it's, it's starting to be evening, it's starting to get dark, and we don't have any clue as to what we're going to do when we notice that there's a car and remember we're out of town and miracle of miracles happens a car slows down stops and out get two of our teammates and their father who just happened to be passing by and they climb up onto the snow and with the five of us we're able to get the old Pontiac Bonneville down onto the road and we're able to go no worse for the wear you know no no <laughs> no harm no foul and uh, until this day my parents didn't know about it until just about five minutes ago <laughs> but I've often thought you know I just remember the sick feeling that I had you know with that car stuck at 45 degrees and you know I've often wondered since then what we would have done if someone or someone's had not come to get us unstuck. We'd still be there, unless somebody had stopped to get us unstuck. One of the ugliest words in the English language is the word, say it with me, stuck. I mean, it's just kind of harsh. Say it with me, stuck. It's just kind of an ugly word. And who likes to be stuck in traffic? Anybody here like to be stuck in traffic, especially in the summer, and the, air yes, and the air conditioning is not working all that great. Ever been stuck on a test question? Grad school, taking a test, and you get stuck on a question? How about stuck in debt? How about being stuck in a bad relationship, or worse yet, being stuck in a series of bad relationships, one right after the other? Or how about being stuck in a bad job, or a dead end job. Friends, there is nothing fun about being stuck. Being stuck is not fun at all. It gives you that sick feeling because you feel like forward progress is never going to come again. Your life is like four wheels spinning on the ice or in the snow. There's a lot of movement, a lot of energy that's being expended, but you're not going anywhere. It's being snared in the same old, same old. There's no escape. It feels like no way out. It feels like no exit ramp. It feels like being stranded hopelessly on a hamster wheel. Ever been there? And what is often the case is that you can't get unstuck unless you have the help of someone else. Now what we saw last week as we were thinking about the first 11 chapters of Genesis is that human beings are stuck 
in sin. Stuck in ugly, ugly sin. And the big truth that I want you to walk away with today, and and a big truth really to think about for the rest of your life, is this. To go from stuck to unstuck involves the help of another. To go from stuck to unstuck involves the help of another. Now, let's just think back to last week for just a second and think about those 11 chapters of Genesis that can be summarized this way, beginning with creation. From creation, we go to fall. Sin enters into the world through the serpent and Adam and Eve. And not just sin, but death, separation from God, all the bad stuff enters through the fall, from the fall, from eating a piece of fruit. Forbidden as it was, we're eating a piece of fruit. From there we go to homicide. Nature of sin. Power of sin. Sin is, is, is a vandal. Sin is, is, is pollution. And from there we go from, from homicide to homicides. And from homicide to Genesis chapter 6 where we read that the inclination of the thought of every heart of every man is wicked all the time. And some of the saddest words in the entire Bible in Genesis chapter 6 and God regretted that He made man. And so we go from fall to homicide to homicides to the flood with Noah, the last righteous man. Earth is going to get rebooted. And from there we go to the Tower of Babel where human beings are trying to get up into God's space and to be like God and to get into heaven. And the earth is scattered into, and the final point would be confusion. Confusion. Sin brings confusion. Humans are stuck on the hamster wheel of sin and going nowhere fast. Fortunately, that is not the end of the story. We go back now to Genesis chapter 4, and Adam and Eve have another son by the name of Seth. And at the end of chapter 4, this is what we read about Seth. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to what? Say it with me. Call on the name of the Lord. Let's say it again. Call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord is kind of an interesting little phrase in Hebrew. To call on the name of somebody means that first you've got to recognize them, right? You've got to see them. You've got to recognize them. You've got to see God. And to call on the name of the God that you recognize is to say, this is the one that I rely on. This is the one that I pray to. This is the one that I worship. It is about praising God and relying on God and worshiping God. In other words, when it comes to Seth, Seth is calling on the name of the Lord and not like everyone else in the world trying to be the Lord. In the midst of the world pushing God away, there is a family line that is now trying to pull God in. And what we see in Genesis with Seth is is a genealogy. We see the family line of those that call upon the name of the Lord in the midst of a world that has fallen. So you got Seth that leads to Noah. Noah leads to the three boys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Shem leads to Terah. Terah is the father of Abraham. At the end of Genesis 11. Here's the thing. At the end of Genesis 11, where this genealogy comes to an end, we are now about to discover that the last family to call upon the name of the Lord 
recognizing God, relying on God, praising God, worshiping God, praying to God, this last family to call on the name of the Lord has gotten stuck. The name Tira means moon. And Tira is living in Ur of the Chaldees. He lives among the Chaldean people. And among the Chaldean people, they thought that the moon was a pretty big thing. And even centuries later, after Israel has become a nation after leaving Egypt, has wandered 40 years in the desert, has gone into the Promised Land under the leadership of Joshua, at the end of Joshua, as he's looking back over that history of taking the Promised Land, he says this about Tira. Long ago, your ancestors, including Tira, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and what? Worshipped other gods. Oh, no. Worshipped other gods. Look at what has happened. The call upon the name people, the call upon the name Lord people, have now become the worshipped other gods people Uh uh-oh and then we read this about sarah who is abram's wife genesis 11 verse 30 now sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive you'll remember at the beginning of genesis genesis 1 and 2 when uh, creation is taking place and god creates man and he gives them sort of marching orders in creation he says go Go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. Notice what happens at the end of Genesis 11. Abraham, who is of the line of those who have called upon the name of the Lord, who are now worshiping other gods, it's no longer be fruitful and multiply. It is being replaced with fallenness and barrenness. And the writer is trying to make a point. The point is this. Humanity has come to a dead end. The last family to call upon the name of God has come to a dead end. But remember, this is our definition of grace, right? From the very beginning, we have said that grace is God's goodness for the good of humans. Grace is God's goodness for the good of humans. Literally, a new chapter for human beings is going to open as we leave chapter 11 and go to chapter 12. And at the beginning of chapter 12, God is going to speak to Abraham, and I want to read to you the words that God says to Abraham out of the blue while he is in Ur of the Chaldees and they're worshiping other gods. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God is stepping into the fallenness of the world once again, and because we already know that that the graciousness of God means that He gives gifts and that He blesses, He is stepping into the human turmoil and the human trouble, and He is blessing someone who doesn't deserve it. And the way that he is interacting with Abraham and saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this, all he's asking Abraham to do is to trust him. Here is an opportunity again 
for human beings to trust God and to trust God's word. And there is, you know, there is a, a, a little subtle irony here. You'll remember that you know, when God created the heavens and the earth, he did it you know, by saying a word, and the word came true. The, the creation was tov, the creation was good. And there was only one command, maximum love, and there was minimum law. You can eat of all of the trees, go forth, multiply, be creative, you know, be fruitful, multiply, all these kinds of things. Just don't eat the one fruit. And yet, human beings did not trust that word that was powerful enough to create everything, and they, they did not trust because we have to know what God knows. I'm not going to trust God's word because I'm going to eat of the fruit of the knowledge, the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, because the serpent has told me, then I will be like God. That is being contrasted now in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. After all of the stuff in Genesis 1 through 11 about sin and the hamster wheel of sin that we're on, God comes to Abraham, and Abraham is going to trust, although I do not have to know what God knows. God doesn't tell him where he's going. He just says, go to a land I'm going to show you. Where's that land? Is there a GPS coordinate for it? If there is, it's never given to Abraham by God. God says, just go, and I'm going to show you the way. And all of a sudden, we have a man imperfect as he is, trusting God. And you know the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham is not going to be without its breakdowns and its missteps, its hiccups, its failures, and botched human scheming and botched erroneous decision-making. I mean, Abraham is far from perfect. I mean, he not only gets into the land, but one of the first things he does, I mean, God has taken him there. They have traveled all that distance from Ur of the Chaldees to the Promised Land, and because there's a famine there, he doesn't, you know, he struggles with the famine and goes down into Egypt. And not only does he leave the land that God has taken him to, but he lies about the nature of his wife. He actually convinces his wife, Sarai, as they're going into Egypt, you know, these people think you're beautiful. They might kill me to have you. Instead of saying, I'm your husband, tell them you're my sister. What wife likes that? And that happens not only once, it happens twice. And again, Abraham is not going to be perfect. And there's the problem of not having a son that's just going to keep poking Abraham in the side till one moment in the history, in one of the, the greatest events in all of history, in greatest moments in history. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent and God shows up. And God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 1, Abraham, do not be afraid. I'm your great reward, and I'm the shield around you. And, you know, we read that, and, you know, God shows up, and he says, Abraham, don't be afraid. Makes us want to ask the question, what is Abraham afraid of? What is the fear in his heart? And he tells us in verse 3, you, God, have given me no children. And this here is a turning point in all of human history. This is a turning point because God takes Abram outside, and with his arm around Abram, he shows him the stars in the sky. It was, you know, it was out there in the middle of nowhere. You could see all these stars. And he says, count the stars if you can. Count them. But here's what I'm going to tell you. This is the way it's going to be with your children. 
It's going to be this way with your kids. They're going to be so numerous, you're going to have a hard time counting them. And verse 6 becomes one of the most important verses in both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. Abram believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram is now has righteousness before God, which means that he has a right standing, which is, you know, sort of a, a theological way of saying that, that Abram is now acceptable to God. He's not perfect, he's far from it, but he trusts God. As we read in the Tony passage uh, uh, before the last song here, you know, he's looking at his own body. He's going, you know, he's, his body is dead. He looks at Sarai. He looks at his wife's body. It's as good as dead. The only way that it's going to happen is if God does it and he decides that he's going to trust God and he believes God and the blessing comes to Abraham because he trusts God. Now again, later in the the New Testament, in the Christian scriptures, we're going to leave Genesis 15 for just a second. Paul uses this very moment in history to explain how the promise of blessing comes to Christians. And in Romans chapter 4, he says, Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace. The blessing comes by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abram's offspring. The words, it was credited to him. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who, what? Believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now, as we have seen about grace, grace, God was, was giving gifts before we were even created, right? It's grace, graciousness is God's nature. Now we see the grace that created us in God's presence is also the grace that returns us to God's presence. Grace is just absolutely amazing. But Abraham, as you know, is still troubled. And the whole blessing thing, it it just leads to one of the most bizarre, crazy moments in the entire Bible. God says, I I know this this is troublesome. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to make a covenant. I want you to go get a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon, and I want you to cut them up, except for the birds, and then arrange the pieces of these animals in such a way that it forms an aisle between the two sets of pieces. And what it is, is actually it's a covenant ceremony. It's pretty gruesome, granted, but quite frankly, folks, that's the entire point. The two parties making the covenant, they come to agreement on the terms of the covenant, and they say, as they walk through the pieces, that if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And so Abraham does it. And in verse 17, when the sun had set, it takes a little time to do it, and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch. And there's a lot of debate about this, but these two words in Hebrew are the two words that describe the presence of God that Moses meets up on Mount Sinai in Exodus. So it's, it's God, the presence of God appearing, and it passes through the pieces in that covenant. It's God's presence moving through the pieces. God is telling Abram that if he, that is God, 
does not come through with the promises that the very things, the exact things that happened to these animals, it's going to happen to God. God's omnipotence is going to become weakness. God's omnipresence is going to become localized. God's omniscience is going to become limited. This is what God is putting on the line. saying, I will bless you. I will bless you. You can take it to the bank. But here's the thing. Abraham has a problem. He's already messed up. He has a problem. What about the end of his bargain? Abraham is fully aware of his own weaknesses and his own shortcomings. Abram knows that he cannot obey God perfectly. He knows without a shadow of a doubt that he will fail and fail again and fail again, again and again and again. He will fail. But notice, Abram never walks through the pieces. God is taking on the responsibility of the covenant for both he and Abram. God is saying to Abram, I will bless you even if I have to be destroyed because you can't hold up your end of the bargain. I will bless you even if you can't honor your end of the bargain. So how do we know this to be true? Centuries later, the Son of God literally itinerant rabbi by the name of Jesus took on our punishment for sin while he was slaughtered on the cross. The Son of God literally took on our punishment, our failings, on the cross. And Paul is going to write to a church in Colossae who's struggling with these things, and he's going to say, you know, once you were alienated from God, separated because of sin, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is the grace of God. And it's so much bigger, as you know, than just being forgiven, as we've seen so far. But here's one of the things that we can say about grace in life on planet Earth today. Grace is God's goodness as an anchor for the good of humans. Grace is God's goodness as an anchor for the good of humans. You know the problem, though, with that is that we don't believe it. We don't believe that at all. I mean, we know that, that there's a lot of people in the world that say, you know, the reason I don't want to trust God is because I think of God as a killjoy. God is going to take my joy away. But disciples of Jesus sometimes struggle with this as well. We think that deep down, if I trust God, I mean, if I really trust God, then I'm going to miss out on something. If I, don't, if, if I trust God and, 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 and live in His presence obediently, then somehow my life is going to fall short because I'm going to miss out on some stuff. And you know what? The reason we hate each other and the reason we hate ourselves and loathe ourselves is because we don't trust God's love. The reason we are covered up in anxiety 
is because we do not trust the peace of God, the peace that passes understanding. The reason we're impatient is because we don't trust the will of God or the timing of God. The reason we're angry is because we don't trust the justice of God. The problem is trust. Do we trust God even when we don't know? And quite frankly, this is why we get tossed around by the waves. We put our trust in how we look, what we wear, our jobs, our money, and our relationships. But you know what all that stuff is? It's just water. It's just liquid. It's just water that ebbs and flows and flows and ebbs all the time. But you know what God's grace is? It's the anchor that goes all the way to the bottom. God and His goodness for our good is the anchor we trust. And that's why this song, even though it's a couple of hundred years old, is still absolutely unbelievable every time we see it. Grace is not just a definition, even though we define it. And grace is an experience, but it's so much more. You know what grace is? It's amazing. Grace is amazing. Let's stand and sing.